So you came to the cool basement here for the evening just to cool off a bit. Um, but really glad you guys can be here. And uh, we're looking forward to uh, what I hope is is one of the most edifying studies that we can ever engage in, namely to think about our Lord Jesus. Um, that's that's kind of what we always want to be doing as Christian believers is to considering Jesus Christ. And so as tonight, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to uh, start off by maybe let's talk a little bit about your neighbors and what they think about Jesus Christ. So you may think about that, but to begin with, I'm going to pray as we start. The guys just hand around the sheets, but pray with me as we begin. Heavenly Father, we call you Father because of your love for your Son, and as we believe in him, we enjoy the privilege of being adopted into your family, being called your very own children, with the very same privilege of, of privileges of your own dear son, Jesus Christ. So help us, Father, as we think about Christ, about who he is and what he has done and what he is doing, and help us to have even the eyes of faith to believe on Christ and to hold him fast and to trust him with our whole lives. I pray that even for many here where there's lots of confusion about Jesus, even though we may know some things about Jesus, but other things we're confused about, I pray that we would come away tonight with greater clarity so that the, the Jesus that we seek is the true Christ and not one of our own making. So give us wisdom tonight. Give us joy and we pray that Christ would be honored amongst us, for we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I just want to start off just as a more of a contextual springboard a little bit. Think about your, maybe your, uh, your neighbors. Uh, what do Mormons think about Jesus Christ? He's the God. All right. All right. Father of yeah and what else yeah so that's good any anything else not eternal not eternal okay created being anyone anybody else spirit brother of lucifer uh various things like that so so there's so and so there's not actually a there's not actually a true humanity with them it's kind of a third it's kind of a kind of a, a cyborg almost and his deity is not the one true god so that's a falsehood what about jehovah's witnesses they believe jesus wasn't god so they they deny his deity um they say that he's a high exalted being but not but not god that's right um before i go all right, let's do this one. Really important to talk about. What do Muslims believe about Jesus? Yeah, yeah, he's a prophet, second best prophet. What else? Yeah, it wasn't crucified. You know, they have kind of, you kind of get around that a little bit. But specifically in terms of of his natures and that sort of thing, what would we what would they say? He's not God. He's not God. Yeah, that's that's kind of the kicker. And that's normally when you're talking to Muslims, that's that's where they're going to go. 
uh, is to deny that Jesus is God, because then they say, oh, well, then you believe in multiple gods. You believe in three gods, right? They accuse Christians of tritheism. Now, one that's a little, a little touchier, one that's a little bit more controversial, and one that might even step on some toes here, is oneness Pentecostals. And if you're oneness Pentecostal, I hope that we can uh, help you out tonight. Uh, but what do oneness Pentecostals believe? The three persons are not distinct. Well said, Glenn. So then how does that affect then how they view Jesus Christ? Yeah, so there's there's this mingling, isn't there? And it's the this one God takes on these facades, these faces of sometimes the Father. Oh, take that mask off. Now put on the mask of the Son. Take that mask off. Then put on the mask of the Holy Spirit. And yet the problem is then, then Jesus, the incarnate Son, is not truly God. He's just a mask. You see, he's just a mask. So it's a problem. And yet... I would say we go to a lot of churches in town, a lot of churches across Canada, a lot of churches around the world. They sing a lot of oneness Pentecostal songs. So I'll leave, I'll leave, I'll leave that with you. You can ask me after what songs are the ones that Um Secular Bible scholars like you might have over at University of Calgary. What's their view of Jesus? What would they say? Yeah, so his, you know, possibly historical person. Some might even say, you know, he's a mythological figure. But yeah, if they think that he's a historical figure, then that's it. Like his claims about deity, his claims about his relationship to God, his claims about his work, uh, all of that would be false or would be hyperbole, they would say, would be figurative, or they'd interpret it in various ways. So they would deny that he is God. So, I mean, I just, I just decided to start that way by showing that there is, like in all of these, they talk a lot about Jesus. All of them. They all talk about Jesus. Lots of Muslims, you talk to them, they'll talk about Jesus lots. But they are not talking about the same Jesus. Uh, Mormons do not talk about the same Jesus, even though they've got, you know, that blonde hair, blue eyed guy, they put on all their material and they'll come to your door and give your stuff. And the Jehovah's witnesses do all this stuff. And they think, Oh, this is the same Jesus. It's not the same Jesus. It even gets challenging when you get the oneness Pentecostal, uh, groups because, you know, well, if you're from a Pentecostal background, that's a Trinitarian Pentecostal background. You think, well, actually our churches aren't, don't seem that different. But it's a pretty big deal if you're if you're not worshiping the true Christ. And it's the same. You can go to University of Calgary and study. You can get a PhD in Jesus studies and yet be referring to someone who is actually not the true Christ. So that's what we want to that's what we want to do tonight. Um, and to do that, uh, it, it just, you know, this kind of study, you might be thinking, oh, names, nature, states, offices already, these categories, I'm intimidated, I'm scared. I don't think I can handle this. I, I, I just kind of like G Jesus the way I want him. And yet I just want to throw out, you, you should have your hand out there. And there's 
I, I gave this poetic line from that great poet, Shai Lin. Does anybody know who Shai Lin is? Who's What's an oh yeah? Where's the oh yeah coming? Okay, so tell us about who, who is Shai Lin. Okay, so he's a rap artist. He's a hip hop artist. He's a rapper. Is this not generally the you know kind of music I listen to? But I've actually I've met Shai Lin. I've been in some meetings with him. Um, just a godly guy, very godly man, and he has has these theological rap songs and. I know my boys have heard it, and they they've heard then this theology. So you have this quote. Uh, I won't rap it. The boys are challenging me to rap it, and I just thought that's a bridge too far. I don't think I can. I don't think I can embarrass myself that much. Um, but he says, "I know it's deep, but when you peep, you'll find it's dense." Jesus, both God and man. 200%, okay? 100% God, 100% man. Fully divine, fully human, human, introducing the hypostatic union. And that term, the hypostatic union, is a, is a theological term to speak about the relationship between the divine and human natures of the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ. So, um, yeah, I had visions of, uh, we're going to play the music as everybody walked in and, you know, all this stuff. And you'd be like, am I in the wrong meeting? Um, but didn't quite pull that off. So, to, but instead, I'm much safer, safer if we go to Mark chapter one, Mark chapter one. Now, <clears throat> there are going to be there are going to be five names of Christ that we want to, to get at. The first name is what? Jesus, right? That's the name. You know, we want to know the name of Jesus. The second name is Christ, okay? The third you have on there is Son of Man, which we'll get to in a minute. The fourth is Son of God. And of course, then the fifth is Lord. Now, even the cowboys on their on the collar of their shirts, they'll say, Jesus is Lord. Now, in Mark chapter 1, right at the beginning, it's amazing, just in a few verses, we have four out of out of these out of the five names of, of Jesus Christ here in this passage so what i want you to do is read uh mark chapter 1 verses 1 to 3 and see if you can pick out all of the names that you can discover in the, in those three verses at your table okay so mark chapter 1 verses 1 to 3 names of names of jesus christ go so you can talk probably have one of you read it one of you, one of you, read it out to the others, and then and then go for it.
Everybody found them? Okay, let's do it. So what's the first name that you find there? Jesus. So anybody know what the name Jesus means? He, yeah, yeah. Yahweh saves. He, he saves. Or what's the Hebrew name? Maybe somebody said it. I didn't quite catch it. Yeah, Yeshua. Yeah, or Joshua. Yeah. So Yahweh, Yah, saves. Jehovah saves. Uh, so that's the, Jesus then is the Greek form of the Hebrew word. So coming from Joshua, the idea of from the Hebrew word to save, that 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 Jehovah is a savior. So this is specifically referring to Jesus as a savior. What's the next name that you see there? Christ. Yeah, Christ. So Christ, uh, Christos, is the Greek word used to translate the Old Testament word Mashiach or Messiah, which means, what, what does Messiah mean? Anybody know? Anointed one. Yeah, anointed one. So he's the anointed one. So when Jesus Christ is put together, it's kind of like, here's your... Here's this proper name, and here's this title, Jesus, the anointed one. But he's, it's so combined together that it actually becomes his very name, Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. And, of course, the anointed ones, there was prophets, priests, kings who were anointed with oil that symbolized the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon all these Old Testament saints for their respective offices, and it qualified them to be able to carry out their work. So Christ was anointed with the Holy Spirit for his role as the Messiah. And we're going to look at some of his offices in, in a little bit here. So uh, he was he was anointed, we know, when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was also, there was a sense in which there was an anointing when he was baptized too. So he was the anointed one. So Jesus Christ, what's the... What's the next name that you found there? Son of God. Yeah, Son of God. So he's the Son of God. It's interesting. Just all, all kind of packed together there in, in this series. And so the Son of God. Well, he's Son of God in more than one sense. Uh, he is the Son in terms of the Trinity. What's What are the persons of the Trinity? Father. Father. Son, Holy Spirit. He is the Son of the Father. He is the Son of God. Uh, so that's true. So he, if to be co-equal with the Father means that he must be God. Uh, he has to have deity in full equality with God. So he's the Son of God. Uh, he's, he's also appointed as the Messiah, so he's the son of God in that respect, and he's also also uh, the son of God by his birth, by the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's a, just another feature. Now, uh, what's the what's the next? You, you said there was four. What's what's the next uh, name that you saw there? Lord. Lord. Okay. Now, where do you find that? Somebody tell me where you found that. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, if you've got in your 
margin of your Bible, you look at verse 3 and you look at over at the little margin, where is it cited from? Isaiah 40, verse 3. <clears throat> now, in Isaiah 40, who is being referred to as, as this Lord? Who, who is that? So Yahweh. So who is Yahweh, Jared, Carey, theology student? The God of Israel. Okay, so it's specifically, specifically the God of Israel, the covenant, uh, covenant Lord, the covenant master, the covenant God who he said in, in the book of Exodus, he says, I am who I am, the self-existent one, but he's bound himself by a covenant to Israel. He is the true God. So when you're talking about the, talking about God, in the Old Testament, there's only one. He's the God of the Jews. He's God of the universe. It is that God, that Lord, is what is prophesied is coming. Prepare the way of that Lord, the Lord. Make his path straight. And yet, it's applied to Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is Jehovah. Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door. You hit him with that pretty pretty quick as for when you're talking. Jesus is Jehovah. You know, uh, I, mean, I know he's, you know, it's like the arch, arch, Archangel Michael or something, you know, they'll, they'll have some other thing. Jesus is Jehovah. And so that gets us into then the names of Jesus. Now, turn over in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, if you've been going through my sermon series here in Mark, you remember when we were in Mark chapter 2, and there was uh, this scene where the paralytic was brought to Jesus, and in verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, he says in, in Mark chapter 2, verse 9, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Well, to a Jew, you think, well, okay, yeah, you, you, definitely you can't forgive sins because only the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, the covenant Lord of Israel can forgive sins. And you, there's a whole mechanism by which you've got to go through with the sacrificial system to, to even attempt to do that. So so that that one's pretty hard. But actually to heal a guy and say, rise, take up your bed and walk, well, that's pretty hard. So he's saying, which, you know, which is easier? And he says, verse 10, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And of course, the guy rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they're all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. But Jesus there in Mark 2 introduces then this, this name, namely the Son of Man. Now, I'm not going to take all the time to go into it back in, back in the book of Daniel, but it is then a, a, this, this, he is then on the one hand, he is then showing he's the epitome 
of mankind, representing mankind. But on another, in another instance, he's also, according to the book of Daniel, he's also this exalted figure, this exalted messianic figure who engages with God on God's level. And so then the Son of Man comes, and the Son of Man derived from Daniel chapter 7, verse th verse 13 the Son of Man has come. He's the, he's the one who's come. And he's got authority. He's got authority and he can forgive sins. And he just went, he bypassed the whole sacrificial system. He bypassed the temple. He bypassed the priesthood. He bypassed it all and just boom, oh, your sins are forgiven. And you want to prove it? Rise, take up your bed and walk. It's an amazing thing. And, and for us, you know, if you've been in church for a while and you kind of get dull to all these things, but you're a first century Jew and you're seeing this dude and he's going around and he's saying, yeah, I'm forgiving sins over here. And you're thinking, uh, that doesn't work that you can't do it. You can't do it like that. That's not allowed. You can't go saying sins are forgiven. That's not right. That's bad. And Jesus is saying, well, actually, no, we're changing the whole paradigm here because I actually am the fulfillment. Jesus is saying. And so it's an amazing thing that the, the term, the son of man, um, and so anyways, so that's, so Daniel chapter seven, verse 13 is kind of a key, key reference point for that one. So we've got these names. When you talk to somebody, I, I'm, I'm assuming you're talking to people about Jesus and a lot of people will talk about Jesus. And, oh yeah. Jesus is still all right with me. Just as cool. You know, you see that. You know, that there's that T-shirt that used to be, and it's kind of like one of those little graphics, and it's kind of got that Jesus with the long hair, and he's got this big thumb, and thumbs up. Yeah, Jesus okay with you. You're good. Yeah, all right, buddy. You know, is that the Jesus? Is it the Jesus that people put in their hip pocket and pull out like a rabbit's foot or a lucky charm, you know, for, for kind of good luck and magic? Who is this Jesus? Well, then we start to discover, oh, this Jesus has names that describe him. And it's really important to consider who he is and, and the descriptions that the scriptures give us about how to understand him, his own self-revelation. Remember, we looked at Revelation earlier, this uncovering, God's uncovering of himself. Well, these are the names by which Jesus is known okay so that's the names the names of jesus then we get on uh to the natures of jesus the natures of jesus you should have a quote there i'll just read it uh kevin de young presbyterian guy down in south carolina i think it is now uh there's a north carolina in the carolinas um dutch guy he says this, in simplest terms, the hypostatic union that we were rapping about, the hypostatic union is a reference to Jesus Christ as both God and man, fully divine and fully human. Hypostasis is the Greek word for subsistence. Think an Think individual existence. So hypostasis is a Greek word for subsistence, individual existence. The hypostatic union, therefore, is the technical term for the unipersonality. 
of Christ, whereby in the incarnation, the Son of God was constituted a complex person with both a human and a divine nature. Now, you might not be grasping that right now, but we're going to try to kind of build on that. And then that's a definition of, of kind of a five-line definition that you can go back to from Kevin DeYoung. But who is Christ? So when you're thinking about Jesus Christ, let me think, I'm trying to get inside of my head here. When you think about Jesus Christ, what do you think about? Is Jesus, you say, well, I, you say, oh, well, Jesus is God. But do you think of it kind of like this? That Jesus was God, he's the son there, and he's God here, and he's man down here through the 30 plus years. Is that how you think of Jesus? Oh, yeah, he was incarnate of a virgin, you know, grew up as a little boy, and as a teenager, and then as a young adult in his 20s, and then in his early 30s, he died on the cross. He performed these miracles, but then it must have been, you know, God's help helping him to do that because he's just a man. But then when he dies on the cross and he's resurrected, well, then he kind of goes back to being God again. A lot of people think that's how it works. I'm not gonna have I'm not I'm not gonna probe each of you and kind of figure out if that's actually how you think. The Lord knows, but that's how a lot of people think. There's a there's a term for this, it's called a canonic Christology. It's it's false. Uh, but but that's that's what a lot of people think. No, that's he is basically this is this is more than this is more the paradigm. He is God. Full stop. Before all creation, the Son is God. But what happens is that in time and space, in, you know, at the beginning of the first century, what we call Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, A.D., what happened? Mary, Mary, she was then made pregnant. She conceived up by the Holy Spirit. And at that point, the Son, who is God, added to himself a human nature. Which then, that continues. So right now, Jesus, the incarnate Son, is in heaven with a human nature resurrected truly human human nature he has never ever ceased to be god he's always god and always will be but he's added to himself then a divine nature well i'm just kind of introing this but what i want us to do is to turn to another classic passage in thinking about this john chapter one let's look at john chapter one and from John chapter 1, later we're going to finish with Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, which has probably one of the hardest passages in the whole Bible, but I don't care. I'm just going to jump into it. We're going to go for it. Um, John chapter 1. I want at your table, I want you to read John chapter 1, 
verses 1 through 18. And I want you to pay attention to two things. Things that would show the divine nature of, of the incarnate son and things that would show the human nature. Okay? So the, the deity or the godness, the, the divinity of Jesus and things that would indicate the humanity of Jesus in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. And so I'm guessing have somebody else read it, unless you've got a designated reader, and just go ahead, read that, and then discuss, and we'll give you a few minutes to do that. Okay, go for it.
we doing? Ah, yes, yes. This mystery, all the immortal dies. Um, empty, empty himself of all but love. Uh, how somebody's emptied himself. Somebody, somebody, somebody changed the words on it. Bless him. Yeah, yeah. Bless him. That's let's. Well, he, he's got all those different hymns that he, especially the Christmas carols. Bad Christology and Christmas carols is kind of his. Yeah. Look, look at this hymnal there. You got to define what the emptying is, right? You know, without it, it's still still canonic. It's still false. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, you're only you. It's better to say rather than empty. He humbled himself. You know, humbled himself to show his love. Yeah. How's everybody doing? You got it all kind of figured out. I can tell that everybody's mining uh, John chapter one, and that's a good thing. Uh, if you've ever spent any time on this, you know that, you know, it's, it's, uh, well, I, one commentator said the gospel of John is, is like a, a, a small, a shallow pool that a child can wade into, but it's also like a, a, a deep ocean in which an elephant can swim. Uh, and that's kind of the nature of the, the gospel of John. But to begin with, uh, what did you see as far as ascriptions, characterizations of Jesus Christ, where he is then has deity ascribed to him? Where 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 do you find that in, in John's gospel there, John chapter one? Who wants to? Maybe somebody hasn't answered. Where do you see it first? okay so where do you see that where's which where do you see that he was first one so so we're seeing that the word at this point we're assuming the word is referring to 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 jesus christ the son the word was with god so he's he's with god in the beginning so his existence 
his existence existed before there was a beginning. Well, if there's no begin, like there's he he's pre-existent to creation. So that's a characteristic of God alone. You know, um, that that there's there's God, the creator, and then he creates. Well, this is saying that this word was with God. He was already there in the beginning, before the beginning. It's a remarkable little statement. So, yeah, so he's with God. So, so that's, that's telling us some things. What else, what else do we find there? So he was in the, in the beginning, was the word, so he exists. He was with God. What else is at the end of that phrase? He was God. So it's actually coming right out and saying not only was the word, which is, it's an amazing thing. Like the, this before the beginning description kind of puts, shows him as God in relation to creation, in relation to time, in relation to everything else. That contrary to that, well, he's God and he's with God, which speaks to some type of relationship. He's with God. But then the last phrase is a statement of, of identity. The word was God. The word was God. So, so whatever we might say about the word, we have to affirm that the word is and was and continues to be God. Now, a couple things just on this phrase. Uh the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses in the New World Translation. If you pick one up at the used bookstore, just leave it there. Don't. <laughs> they will add the word was a God. And if you if you've if you've got into anything, if you have Jehovah's Witnesses in your family, or if that's your background, there's all kinds of stuff about supposedly this idea that that then there that the word was a god and of course if he's just a god he's just one of many he's just small small g god right he's not the true god uh but basically greek grammar does not allow for that it doesn't work uh it's been debunked multiple times the word was god now it's interesting as well in john's you know, his human brilliance, but also uh, obviously the superintendence of the Holy Spirit. It's still not saying God was the word. Which actually, on the one hand, would say, oh, yeah, well, that that still means that Jesus is God. But that would also mean just the way that the language works, that the only way we could describe God is by describing him as the word. And that would then, that would, if it was like that, it wouldn't allow us to be Trinitarian. There'd be no way to say that, you know, the word was God or to be able to say the father was God or to say the spirit was God. And so it's kind of a linguistic argument, but it's just fascinating that that is how then the Greek original lays it out. It's not in, a, not in restricting divinity only to the word in terms of description. But it is affirming very clearly that the word, you can't think of the word unless you think of him as God. So very clear, right off the hop. Um, 
Some other things as far as, let's just stick with thinking about the deity of Jesus Christ, the deity of the word. Someone else who maybe hasn't answered. Okay. What does he say there? Yeah, so so again, you know, when it's saying all things, that's everything. <laughs> like so so here you like and, and just remember, just put it in the context of okay, there's this first century, here's this first century document talking about this word, but it's kind of a Jewish context. And we thought, oh, all things were made through Jehovah. All things were made through the covenant Lord of Israel. And this is saying all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So it's putting then the word that is Christ there as the creator. Like Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe. We don't worship just one more guru like all of the other religions. We worship the creator. Jesus Christ is the creator of you and me. He's created the universe. Um, and so you have those attributes. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You can just see even life and light as attributes generally ascribed to God in ultimate sense. Well, these are ascribed then to the word. Any others uh, any others that way that you want to point out in terms of uh, before in terms of the the deity of the word, the deity, the divinity of of Jesus Christ. Any others? Well, he gave them the right to become the children of God. Yeah. Okay. He gives. He can give this right. Yeah. He can give this right. Uh, where do you find that? You give us the verse. Yeah. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So there's all of this, all of this relationship to God that only God has the right to give. The word then is involved in that in in terms then of giving that right however this is a good segue how when it says verse 11 he came to his own and his own people did not receive him is that then jehovah coming to his people what in a glory cloud like how how is how is then this divine word coming to his people? As a man, yeah. So so there you see kind of then the hinge of he's both God and man. He came to his own. Who are his own? The Jews, Jewish nation. He he's the Jewish Messiah, first and foremost. And 
for the most part, his own people did not receive him. But of course, there are some. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, for the Jew, when they when they hear that, what are they thinking? Uh, I thought I was already a child of God. I thought we were already the children of God. We we're already, I mean, even Jews today will speak of themselves as the sons of God. If you, if you know any Jewish friends, you know, well, I thought I was, I, I was this already. Ah, but this is different to be a child of God born, not of blood. It's not your ethnicity, nor of the will of the flesh. It's not by your own willpower, nor of the will of man. No, no other capacities, but simply of God. This is remarkable. You have then this divine word coming, and he's coming, coming to his own. He's not just a man. He's a particular kind of man. He's a Jewish man coming for Jewish people. He comes to them very specifically. And so then where is then the next indication of this humanity that's that's kind of like your go-to verse for the humanity of Jesus. What's, what's the key verse there? What's the next one? Verse 14. Read it for us, Robert. And the Lord became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory of the unsung from the Father country. Okay. So this is remarkable because it's still speaking. And if I can go, I redrew my little picture here. It's still speaking of this divine word. It's still God, right? The word, he's just continuing on. He's the divine son. He's God. We just said the word was divine, didn't we? Right? Not, not quitting on that. So he's still divine, but he became flesh. Virgin Mary, virgin conception. He became flesh and he dwelt among us he dwelt among us of course some of you might know that word for dwell is the same word sometimes used with respect to the tabernacle and this idea of here here is then god in a similar paradigm but not exactly the same here is god not he's not coming to a tent out in the desert in that tabernacle he has come and he's taking on human flesh adding human flesh to himself and he's dwelt among us and so then what was the thing when uh in the old testament you remember could you look at god directly and live no what does this say we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth it's amazing. Have you ever thought about it that that part of the reason why the son took on flesh was so that we could see God and not be nuked, not be wiped out. We can look upon God. That's, that's the thing. And so then for those first century Christians, they could look upon Jesus Christ. They could see God in the flesh. And that's John's testimony. We have seen. 
his glory. It's a statement of absolute fact in John's testimony. We have seen his glory. Because somebody, you know, somebody at work will say, oh, yeah, well, God, like, oh, so deep. It's meaningless. How could you ever know? God, he's, oh, yeah, well, he's all up there. And who can know? Who can say? No, there's people who say, we have seen his glory. We've seen it. You may choose not to believe what we're saying. That's fine. But we have seen his glory. It's an amazing thing. And so should have that. Um Anything else there as far as the humanity and divinity of Jesus Christ in those next uh, few verses there? John in chapter 15 says that uh, he who comes after me ranks before me. Okay. So we know that um, Jesus was younger. Yeah. But so it's in not not in terms yeah in terms of birth order, but it's in terms of John's view of Jesus being higher. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, anything else in in verses four and verses well say fifteen through eighteen there. We talked about verse sixteen how it's set up both actually. Yeah. How so? Well. Yeah, so so it's grace upon grace because then the provision is, you know, even as we saw in Mark chapter 1, we saw, well, it's a gracious, wonderful thing. Prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord's come. That's what the whole Old Testament is looking for. Oh, if only Yahweh would come in a special way and help us, and deliver us. That's the whole prophetic emphasis of the Old Testament. Oh, if only Yahweh would come. Well, yeah, okay, we see Yahweh has come. The word has come. But as Jason said, well, there here's this, we're receiving, it's grace upon grace because of this fullness, because not only has Yahweh come, but he's come, and he's not wiping us out. He's not nuking us. Because he would, if the holy God to look on him, but he comes and he takes on flesh so that we can receive the undeserved favor. It's un, it's grace upon grace to receive him. And then he says in that remarkable verse, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So he's pitting, I mean, it's continuity, but Moses that great and epic figure who, who looked upon God's backside, the afterglow of God, got, got as close as he could to seeing God. And yet, the law is given through him, but here, in this superlative way, Jesus Christ, the, the prophet like Moses, the anticipated prophet, the true man, he brings grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Then we get to verse 18, which kind of I was driving at. No one has ever seen God. <laughs> Full stop. Right? You know, to people, you, you'd want to have a uh, kind of a Discovery Channel TV show. You know, oh, yeah, people have seen God, you know, that kind of stuff. And some type of mysticism and whatever. No, 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 no. No one has ever seen God because 
they would be nuked. The only God who is at the Father's side, literally, you can even see it in your little footnote there. You should see a footnote in the Greek, in the bosom of the Father, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So how do you know God? You look upon the face of Jesus Christ. You you can see God by looking to Christ. And you're saying, yeah, but I don't, I don't see Jesus right now. I don't see Jesus right now. Yes, but by faith, we then start, we're starting to know what is this Jesus like? And if he has testified that he exists, even though we don't see him, he has ascended into heaven, he's as real as all of your spouses who are at home, and you can't see them right now, but you know they're real. They're there. Your kids are at home. They're real. You know they're there. You know, and I've said many times, I always love the the little the little statement Robert Murray McShane said. If if I knew that Jesus Christ himself was in the next room over there praying for me. I wouldn't fear 10,000 evils or a million devils. I wouldn't fear anything. But distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. He, he is there. I don't see him, but he exists and he's active. He's active right now. Did you know, if you're a Christian believer right now, he is praying for you at this moment. The risen Christ is interceding for you right now. You think, oh, I'm not very good at praying. Yeah, I know you're not. I'm not very good either. We're all really poor prayers. But Jesus Christ is praying for the believer. So you don't have to be perfect in praying. You've got the perfect prayer praying for you. And that is, that's amazing. And so how do you know God? Well, you look upon the face of Christ. So, so we're starting to get into this. So. So we see he's truly God. He's truly human. And what I'm trying to point out too, I've chosen not, I've chosen not to go into early Christian creeds. For example, the Nicene Creed, the, the, the uh, Chalcedonian definition, these ones that came in about 300 AD and so forth, 400 AD. We could. They're great, concise definitions. But what I wanted to do tonight was show you that it's in the Bible. And you can find it in the Bible. Uh, and so you derive it from the Bible, as these godly theologians did, and they concisely summarized it in these amazing statements that we confess in our church and through all Christian churches throughout history. So that's kind of the scoop there. Um, yeah. Any questions on John chapter 1 and and this, this two natures? You should know now, if I quiz you, when I say how many natures, or does does the incarnate Son Jesus Christ does he have one nature or two natures? Well, what are you going to say? Two natures. Yep, Akeem. Yep. Yeah. I think that's correct. You're putting it to me. 
So the problem is, ooh, I'm getting too forceful here. Akeen's coming at me, and I'm going to get ready to see what, whether I can do this. So generally, his idea is this is what he's trying to communicate. So therefore, you know, 100% together with another 100% is 200%. But it, but actually, that it's it's kind of poetic license because, and this is another thing. Actually, uh, Hunter and I were talking about this. Some guys will make a point to say fully God or truly God. I remember seeing R.C. Sproul correct John MacArthur when John MacArthur spoke of God, or spoke Jesus Christ as being fully God and fully man. And Sproul said he's truly God and truly man. And the and the reason why, and this is in this realm of discussion, the reason why is when you speak of fully, it implies that, okay, well, is he this full? Is he this full? Is he this full? And that we're in some sense, we're measuring his divinity or measuring, measuring his humanity. And so inherently within that, then the problem is you've, you've kind of conceded a bit of a wrong way of thinking about the whole thing. The divinity of God is immeasurable. The humanity of the incarnate son, Jesus Christ, in one sense, is immeasurable because he is the perfect man. So it's not that, well, in a scale of percentages, he's 100%. At the same time, for most people, the idea when they're comparing to false teaching is that 100% is a way that we think of someone as being not only fully, but truly then the perfect, you know, complete whole. So 200%. Is Shylin's way of speaking of fullness. But we should not use the term fully. It's I think it's 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 okay, but it's it's probably technically it's actually has technical concessions. It's not it's not false. It's just what it does is it's there's presuppositions in behind it that you could kind of get into and, and it kind of mess you up. So it's very, very, we're, we're really cutting it fine here at a critique of 200%. But that's the, that's the idea. It's a way, it's his way of trying to articulate sim the simple truth that he's truly God and truly man. See, it, it, it wouldn't be a big deal. Oh, so, oh, sorry. Well, just one second. It wouldn't be a big deal. It wouldn't be a big deal if if there weren't all these bad heresies out there and there weren't all these things where people people will will think of Jesus okay well Jared and I were joking about Christmas carols um you know what's uh see now my mind's blank but I'm thinking those Christmas carols where uh, uh away in a manger yeah no crying he makes Jesus doesn't cry well then is he is he truly human 
Babies, babies cry for no. Is he truly human? The question is, or is he some type of like he's this? He's kind of this this third third kind of being, this kind of mutant that doesn't doesn't cry. You know, he doesn't get hungry. He doesn't go to the bathroom. You know, really. I don't know. I you know. I know we don't really think about that, but but that's he's truly human. He's a he's a real man, truly man. So, but but that's where we can kind of spiritualize or or the a great heresy in many of these things. Great heresy is to view him view Jesus as being this superior being. Maybe even higher than the angels. Lots of the early early Christian heretics, they believed that Jesus was higher than the angels. So he's a demigod, but they did not believe that he was the true God. They did not believe he was the true God. Arius did not believe Jesus was the true God. He said there was a time when he was not. There was a time, think of it, there was a time when he was not. Well, no, that's not that's not the Jesus we're talking. Go ahead. You had a question. Uh, yeah, because I just finished uh, studying Colossians. So in Colossians one verse nineteen, it says, "For in the body, but in him all the fullness of his dwell." Mm -hmm. And then again in Colossians two verse nine, it says, "For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily." So that word fullness. So, so the 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 term fullness in that instance, in that instance, is referring then then to it is describing in a sense a quantity, but it's but it's trying to say the fullness of of deity is there at the same time. What we're getting at here with with these when when they're talking about this is a Chalcedonian Nicene formulation. Uh, this is early church formulation, truly God, is that is that in the debates when these were going on, there was there was discrepancy about how full he really was. So that so this is a little bit more the historical theology language. But as you pointed out, there is language in scripture that speaks of his fullness. But it's talking then in uh yeah, yeah, cautions uh 119, for example, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Well, it's just making a comment. The theological term would be God's immensity. Uh, the, the, the thought that he fills, God fills all. God fills all. God's not restricted to some, you know, little spot, little box. He fills all. And so then... The incarnate son has then that that characteristic of deity. And that's kind of it's a little bit more speaking of, a, of an attribute of immensity rather than his very essence is a little bit what we're getting at. So but it's very good, very good to pick out. And sometimes that's what we find is that there'll be biblical language that we have to that that sometimes in the history of the debates of theology where we're trying to. We're trying to fight over against certain things. Like if we only said fullness and only spoke of his immensity, well, then we might get into this thing where, yeah, I think we can measure. We can measure his deity, you know, but that's not the point. 
It's actually in this, in Colossians, in that instance, it's his immensity that, that he, it's his attribute that he cannot be contained and that he, his presence is fully everywhere at the same time and fills all. And so, and that, that's the quality of the attributes that Jesus himself possesses. So, so that's, I mean, it's really good stuff. It's all kind of the same thing, but in terms of this, that's one attribute is his immensity. One attribute among many uh, that God possesses. So, yeah, so that'd be maybe how I'd answer that. So very good question. Okay, so we go from John chapter one to where angels fear to tread into Philippians chapter two. Now you think, oh, Philippians, is, that's that's my favorite book of the Bible. It's, I love it. Well, I do too. I love it too. It's just that uh, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, uh, there's, there's some of the things here that are some of the most debated verses in the history of Christian exegesis. Uh, but I don't care because I've got opinions on it and I'm going to share them with you. And that those debates don't affect materially anything that we're going to talk about today because that's clear enough for everybody to see. So I want you to read Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11 with your group. And I want you to think again about this question. We will get rid of Shyland's percentages. <laughs> Even though he's 100% God, if we want to say that, he's fully God, he's truly God. But we want to see how deity is described and humanity is described and the relationship between the deity, the divine nature, and the human nature expressed in what some even might say possibly is an early Christian hymn, although I think Paul crafted it. So uh, Philippians 2, 5 to 11. You can read it and go.
No, well, I should be. I'm not. Yeah, my my view is it's not to be exploited. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Well, Peter O'Brien kind of did did it, but then uh, he kind of was. But N.T. Wright, when he went through it, there's there's like six major schools of thought, six different ways of taking it. Um, I won't talk about that here, but but that's uh, it's called it's the rest rapiendum is the is the the arguments uh and it's called but but then everything's about atom christology is it is it atom not having and not having and seizing yeah you know or is it yeah or is it or is it or is it that oh no he's got this and he's not he's not exploiting it you know and kind of major ideas Christology, well, because he's got an adoptionist Christology. Gunn does. Gonna have to move us on. Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. 
you see, of course, this is then this basis for for kind of a Christian exhortation of a certain way, certain attitude that probably each of us needs to hear tonight. Uh, just as far as the attitude, the mind that was in Christ Jesus that we need to adopt. But look at verse six. So critical. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God. Stop right there. So it's very clear, Jesus Christ is God, okay? He's He has deity, he has equality with God, even in terms of a Trinitarian sense. He has equality with God, so there's, there's no, like you can't, there's no like, if you're equal with God, you're God. There's no, there's no, it doesn't work any other way. So he has equality with God, therefore he's God. But he didn't count equality with God, ESV translates it, a thing to be grasped. Now, some might think, oh, as if equality, he didn't have the equality, he's going to reach up and grab it. No, no, he has equality with God, but I prefer something along the translation, Jared and I were just talking about it, a translation, uh, something to be exploited. He doesn't exploit his deity. He doesn't say, I've got it, I've got deity. I'm just I'm gonna I'm gonna use that for my own ends. I'm gonna exploit it. But instead, verse seven, he emptied himself. Now, if that's all it said, then Jared and I are talking about, you know, mistakes in hymns and even Charles Wesley's and can it be emptied himself of all but love. Now, you just think, oh, well, did he empty himself of all of his deity? Right? We, I addressed that before, and that's what people think. That he emptied himself of his deity and he became man. No, but it's very important. And this is where the ESV does get it right here in verse 7. Emptied himself how? What is this emptying? What is this kenosis? Well, it's defined for us. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. It is, it is a humiliation. It is a subtraction, if you will, by addition. This, this is a strange thing. He adds humanity. And by adding humanity, by adding that to himself, that is his downward spiral, as it were. That is his, we're not going to have time to go through the states. That is his humiliation. It is humbling. He, but he didn't exploit his deity. He didn't say, nah, I don't need to. Let's pass on this one. No, no. He, he humbles himself by taking on the humanity. The humanity is the humiliation. You think, oh, well, his humiliation was when they're spitting on him on the on the way to the cross. Yeah, that was his humiliation. But his humiliation began in the incarnation taking on humanity. And people say, oh, I don't want to bring a baby into this world. How what, what a rough, awful thing. And here's here's the God of the universe who's saying, no, I'm not going to exploit equality with God. I'm going to take on humanity. Pure, perfect, 
true humanity, but it's going to be in this rotten world. And it is, it is a humiliation to come into this world. And of course, does he come as a, as a king, as one of the, as one of the billionaires in Davos, Switzerland? No, he comes as a servant, as a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself. There's that word. It's a humiliation. He humbled himself. How? What was the nature of his humiliation? I'm getting into the states now. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient to whom? Yeah, obedient to God. According to the human nature. Now, this is real quick here. Okay, nature. Nature. Okay. Nature. Nature is always connected to will. How many, how many divine natures are there? Trick question. How many divine natures are there? One, very good. So how many wills are there in God? One, one will, one God, one will. I want to do the will of God. There's one will. There's not three wills. There's one will because there's one divine nature. Now, another trick question. How many wills can we say does the incarnate son have? Everybody's like, two. Divine will, human will. So in the Sermon on the Mount or in Golgotha, he, in Golgotha, he says, not my will, but yours be done. He is speaking and praying according to the human will, according to the human will, just like we would, praying to God, praying to his heavenly father, like we would, praying to him that your will be done, God. But that still doesn't mean that the, that the will of the son is somehow, you know, jettisoned. It is in complete harmony. But that's what we're talking about. There's two wills in the incarnate son because there's two natures. But there are not three wills in God because there's three persons. Nature is always connected to will. There's one divine nature, one God, and therefore one will. So that, that was just kind of a freebie, that one. Um, so he comes... He's obedient. That was our point in Philippians 2 and verse 8. He's obedient to the point of death. He's obedient according to the human nature. He obeys according to the human nature, according to his human will. He obeys the will of God. He obeys the will of God, which, of course, is his own divine will, but is the will of the Father. Of course, he's providing an example for us, right? He's blazing the trail for us. He's obedient to the point of death. Talk about humiliation. This is the state of humiliation. 
even death on a cross, the worst kind of death there could be in the Roman world. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. This is in your states, humiliation. There's the state of exaltation. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So not only Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, but here is this description that Jesus Christ is the true God, the God of Israel, the one God. And if you didn't think that was true, actually, he's going to have a name that's above all of creation, not just natural, but supernatural creation. It's all above all of it. That's his exaltation. And so we have divine and human then expressed in this amazing text here. But that's a key is he, he is humiliated by the addition. He doesn't give, he doesn't, he's not, he doesn't have stuff taken away. He doesn't become kind of a half God. He doesn't, he doesn't have stuff ripped out of him. He doesn't like abandon pieces of him. No, his humiliation comes by addition. It's by addition. It's an amazing thing. So powerful. Um, so that's the two natures. I'm going to, we we also have in this passage, as I said, the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. I'm just going to skip over the hymns. I'm also going to skip over the offices. I think that's a good study for you to engage in, is to look at the aspects of Christ in his office or role as functioning as a prophet, as a priest, and a king, which is very unique, distinct for Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. Then we get, however, then, we're just going to look at two passages. I'm going to walk you through them just real, real quick here. Looking at then the atonement, it doesn't seem to justify it here, but we have to get these natures down to look at the atonement. Look at Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10. We'll try to wrap up in the next about five minutes or so here, and then I'll let you guys go get ice cream. Right? Everybody's like, oh yeah, now I'm craving ice cream at this time of night. Now. Isaiah 53:10. So this is a prophecy. Of the suffering servant understood to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53.10. So speaking of this servant figure, and I don't have time to go through the whole passage, but Isaiah 53.10 says, It was whose fault, we could say. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. So even though in Acts it says it's by the hands of wicked men that Jesus would put to death, God in his superintendence, it was the will of the Lord, the divine will, to crush him. To crush Jesus Christ, the man Christ Jesus on the cross. He has put him to grief. When his soul, that is then the incarnate son, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see 
and be satisfied. And by his righteous, by his knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, men, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. I'll tell you this: How can you die and then see? your offspring how can you prolong your days after you die how how can all of that happen how can you see and be satisfied after you're dead it doesn't say he's resurrected but it implies that's the only way that this can happen he must rise from the dead because then he can see and all of all the children of God who are born again because of all that he has accomplished, because of dying for their sins. He sees them because he's risen from the dead. It's an amazing thing. And so we see then the necessity of the atonement was such that it had to happen. It was the will of God. It was according to God's good pleasure to have this. So God didn't have to. He, he could have just nuked us. He didn't have to do this. He provided a savior for us. Of course, that's what John 3.16 says, right? John 3.16, you know it, but we better turn there because you don't look at the context, do you? For God so loved the world. Oh, you really, 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 really love the world. That's what how people read it. And he did really, really love the world. But it's more, it's, this is the manner. It's in this manner that God loved the world. That's how it should be translated. In this manner, for God so loved the world, in this manner, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clear, clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You see... Is the thing. People are condemned already. And Christ has come to be the Savior, the only Savior the world can ever know. He is that Savior. I say that very carefully. He is the only Savior the world can ever know. But then, of course, we've got to ask the question, uh, what did the cross achieve? Did the cross merely make people potentially savable? Is that all it did? Or did, did actually the cross accomplish something? Did it actually do something? Um, turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and then we're almost wrapped up here. You might know the context, Romans 3.21. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So it's 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 wide open, but you've got to believe for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in trouble. 
but he says, and are justified, anyone who is justified is by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then it says, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. What is a propitiation? What is a propitiation? Payment. Okay, it's a payment. What else? Appeases wrath. Okay, appeases wrath. Okay, what else? Satisfies justice. Satisfies justice. Okay, these are all good tracks. It actually is getting kind of the flavor of it. Propitiation is a word, not merely that it satisfies justice, although that's true. But if it was only that, it would not be enough. It is actually the reception of the just divine wrath of God that is received. And it is, in one sense, it is like, you know, when they have the, the used to have the space shuttle launch, or now it's SpaceX, and they have the fire coming out of those, those burners, and those burners are coming down on the ground. Well, they've got to have somewhere to go. So they've got big tunnels that vent that fire. And you can stand out on the other side and you won't feel a thing. You don't feel a thing. It's in a sense that the wrath of God comes and is soaked up by this sponge that is Jesus Christ, the propitiation. He soaks up the wrath of God and oh, there's no, there's no wrath left over. You, you go around thinking, oh, God's angry at you. I know you do. You think, oh, God, what did I do? God's, God's, God's not happy with me today. <laughs> Jesus soaked up the wrath. There is no anger towards you anymore because it's been propitiated. The wrath has been received. He received the wrath and he vented it. And he received the penalty of it because he died. And so... He was put for it as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he'd pass over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. He doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't let criminals get away with it. And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Even justifying the ungodly. You're not, you're not coming to him godly. You're coming to him as a, as a begging sinner. You're trusting him and his righteousness. And the only way you can come into God's presence is because it's been propitiated. The wrath has been vented out. The wrath has been soaked up. Now, is that indiscriminate for everybody? No. You don't have the time. But Romans, Romans 1.18 and following talks about the wrath of God that is still upon men. The wrath has not been propitiated for everyone. Now, anyone who believes in Jesus Christ enjoys that propitiation. But if, but if they are not believing in Jesus Christ, they are outside of that. The cross achieves something. Jesus purchased the people for himself and propitiated the wrath of God for them. And as we saw in Philippians, as we saw in Philippians chapter Two and verses 5 to 11, the obedience of Christ made it happen. This is the last thing I'll say, and then we'll be done. This is the active and passive obedience of Christ. J. Gresham Machen, 
near his deathbed, he said, thank God for the act of obedience of Christ. No hope without it. What did he mean? He meant that we need someone to positively, actively obey God to accrue enough righteousness to actually say we have obeyed God. Did you obey God today? Completely? Fully? 200%? Right? Guys? I'm just, I'm just teasing. But you know, like, like what? it's not 200% is enough. 300%, 400%, to infinity. Have I actively obeyed? Well, no, I haven't. How then can I stand before God? I need someone who is both God and man to obey God according to the human nature as a true man, as a substitute for me. I need him to obey fully, truly, absolutely. And then his righteousness, perfect, pure, impeccable, can be credited to my account. The passive, the passive righteousness, the passive obedience, I should say, is a receptive obedience where Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, he actually was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, and he received the wrath of God against him obediently. He's not a... He's not, he's not like, oh, I'm a victim here. Oh, I can't. He's a, he's a voluntary sacrifice. He's receiving the wrath and he's there for it. Yep. This is, I'm, this is what I'm here for. It's his passive receptive obedience. And this is the righteousness. Some of you have heard, if you've been in my class, you've heard, uh, David Linden, a Presbyterian missionary to the Philippines, told me this many years ago. He said, you know, our basic problem is that we have something that we need to get rid of. We lack something that we need. We have sin we need to get rid of. We lack something we need, which is righteousness. How can we stand before God if we're not righteous? How can we, how can we ascend your holy hill? So that's our dilemma. We have something we got to get rid of. We lack something we need. We have sin. Jesus the divine man takes our sin upon himself. It's credited to him. He's our sin bearer, our substitute. But that would, you go around, you say, yeah, Jesus died for my sins. It's only half the gospel. It's not enough. It's not enough. Because what it would do, it would only get us, it would only get us to zero. And then it's like, now I've got to obey God. I've got to hustle up. I've got to obey God as much as I can because Jesus died for my sins. No, 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 no. Doesn't work like that. He also gives me something I lack, namely righteousness. He credits it to my account because he was actively obedient to the point of that. He was obedient to the max. And that's credit to me. And when God then looks at me, he sees me as having the pristine purity of the atonement of Christ as well as the absolute righteousness of Christ. And he cannot see me another way. And you know what our problem is? We don't actually see ourselves in view of the privileges we enjoy. It's not that, oh, well, God, I'm disappointed with God because he's not being nice to me and he's sour with me. No, no, no. You don't understand all the privileges you enjoy because he's provided everything for you from first to last.
I've gone over time. I'm going to pray. And then I'm, I'm going to pray so you can leave if you need to. And then I'm going to take questions and you can get ice cream. But it's a whirlwind. I thank you all for coming. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we think about your son, oh, grace and truth come to us. I pray that we would gaze upon the face of Christ, even unseen to our human eyes. And yet by the eye of faith, we are starting to see more and more of what he is like. Help us then to have hearts filled with a desire to worship him in spirit and in truth. Oh, make it so, Heavenly Father, even according to your spirit, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'll take questions. If you got to go, you can go.